So for our scripture reading today, which I'm, I'm very nervous about and very giddy about at the same time, is going to be, I'm going to start in uh, reading Proverbs 5, uh, 1 to 6, and then I'm going to jump over to Proverbs chapter 6, verses uh, 20 to 24, and then jump down to verse 7, 1 to 5, to show you kind of the three talks we're going to look at uh, in the book of Proverbs. So starting in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, hear the word of the Lord. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And then jump to chapter 6, starting verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandments. Forsake not your mother's teachings. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And then jump down to chapter seven, verses one to five. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. As for the reading of God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to this important and serious and yet sensitive subject, Lord, would you give me words to speak clearly, to speak carefully, to speak so that we have conviction where we need it, where we have comfort, where we need it, and Lord, where we have instruction, where we lack it. Lord, would you teach us about this good and dangerous gift of yours? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's three series of talks we're going to look at, and they all deal with the same subject, as you've seen from the readings and the introductions to him. And at one point in these series of talks, the father asks his son this question. Can a man carry fire in his lap and his clothes not get burned? Now, this question is a very fitting metaphor for the topic we're going to cover and ask a very fitting rhetorical question. Because when you think about fire, fire is a wonderful gift on the one hand. When you get to sit next to a fire on a cool Florida winter night, when it's clear, you get to gaze up at the stars, you get to feel the warmth of the heat it produces, you get to sit around good company sharing good conversation and laughter, you get to cook hot dogs or hamburgers, you get to roast marshmallows. When you experience that gift of fire, do you not feel God's pleasure and goodness that he would give us this gift? Yet we also know that fire, as wonderful of a gift it is, it is a dangerous gift. Do you remember the first time you got burned by fire. I remember it very well. I was very hungry, and so I decided on my own, not knowing what I was doing, to light my parents' gas grill. And the pilot light was not working. So you know with gas grills, you, you open the valve, get the burner ready, you light the pilot. Well, that was not working. Well, I was too hungry to stop. My, my desires were pushing me to keep going. So I decided to use a match. So I decided to use a match, open the valve all the way, turn all the burners onto full blast. I thought this would be a very effective way to start the gas grill. 
Now, before I tell you what happened, it's important to know that there was a warning label on the cover of the gas grill that said, do not ignite with matches. This could cause an explosion. But, and this is critical for the sermon as well, my appetite overruled the warning, right? My appetite overruled the warning. So I lit the match and tossed it on the grill. And it worked too well. (laughs) The fire leapt out, licked the right arm that I had used to light the match so fast because I couldn't pull it away quick enough that I felt an unbearable, intolerable, searing pain on my arm. And when I looked down, it was a different, brighter color of red, and there was no hair left on my right arm. It was gone. Thankfully, it it wasn't worse. But I remember that to this day. And it seared into my mind, if you play with fire, you are going to get burned. A proverbial statement my parents had said many times, and now I knew that they were right. Fire inside the boundaries of a fireplace, handled with care, is a delightful, wonderful gift. But fire handled with foolishness, when it's moved outside the boundaries of that fireplace, is a painful, harmful force that causes much destruction, even death. Now this, as you know, is not a sermon about fire safety, okay? As important as that is, this is a sermon about this topic of sexual purity that the father addresses very poignantly with his son. And the reason I bring up fire is because like fire, our physical desires, our longings for love and intimacy and pleasure are a good and dangerous gift. They're good, Because God has put those longings and those physical desires and appetites in us as part of his design. Adam and Eve had those longings and desires for each other before the fall, when things were perfect and wonderful, when there was no sin. The danger of those desires is what came after the fall. The danger is that because of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly conspiring to corrupt, distort, and pervert those desires which God originally made very good. We live in a world that is scorched and burning itself down with the fire of sexual immorality that has escaped from the fireplace. And so the question that Proverbs 5 through 7 forces us to ask and answer is how can we pursue purity in a world that is burning with immorality? How can we pursue purity in a world that is burning with immorality? Well, in the first place, To pursue and protect our purity, we must be armed with biblical truth and wisdom. Ignorance is not bliss on this subject. Now, just look again at the three openings that the Father gives to start the three talks he gives to the Son. So Proverbs 5, 1 and 2. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. Then in chapter 6, starting verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandments. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Let them lead you. Let them watch over you. It is a lamp and a light. It will preserve you from the smooth talk of the evil woman. And then in chapter 7, again, the opening talk. My son, keep my words. Treasure them up. Keep my commandments and live. Keep them as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You can hear the intensity and earnestness in the father's appeal to his son. Three times he addresses this topic, and three times he opens the topic by saying, listen very carefully, listen closely. What I'm about to say demands 
your carefulest, closest attention. Now, when you are a student in class, if you're one now, when you're sitting in class throughout the semester and your professor pauses and says, I want you to pay careful attention because what I'm about to say is going to be on the final exam. What do you do? You put away social media, you put away the phone, and you pay careful attention because, yes, you should be listening always, but everyone knows you don't have to listen all the time in class. But you need to be listening especially when what is about to be said is going to be on the final exam. That's essentially what the father is doing here. What I'm about to tell you, son, and you you can flip it around, mother, daughter, what I'm about to tell you about sexual morality and sexual purity, this is going to be on the exam of life. You are going to face this. You are going to deal with, because you're made in the image of God and because we live in a fallen world, you have to listen, you have to pay attention. In addition to that, if you were to do just a general survey the book of Proverbs, you were to take all the various topics that are addressed, kind of arrange it in in categories of material, and then do a kind of percentage study. How much percentage is addressed by this topic, that topic, of the whole book of Proverbs? If you did that survey, you'd find that two topics stand out above the rest in terms of the attention they get. Can you guess what they are? It's wisdom regarding sexual purity and wisdom regarding financial stewardship. Sex and money, more than anything else in the book of Proverbs, gets the most attention. Why is that? Well, consider the author of the book of Proverbs, the main author, Solomon. Solomon knows better than anyone else what happens when you take a fire and you move it outside the fireplace. And he has 700 wives and 300 concubines to prove it. He knows that when you live foolishly and promiscuously in this area of life, it leads to damage and destruction. In the book of 1 Kings, when it talks about Solomon's issue with gold and gals, right after it talks about that issue, it mentions the collapse of the kingdom. And we're meant to make a connection. Solomon had an issue with gold and gals, and this led to the downfall of the nation of Israel. And by virtue of that unfortunate experiential knowledge, Solomon was well aware of something. He was well aware of the pervasiveness and power of the temptations to sexual morality. He knew how strong, how forceful, how enticing, how seductive it was. And so he addresses it over and over and over again with his son. There's many topics addressed in Proverbs that are important, but this one demands our closest attention. Anger and laziness and corrupt speech and foolish behavior have slain their thousands, but lust has slain its millions. And Solomon knows that. And if it was pervasive and powerful in their day, how much more so in our day? The infection rate of seductive enticements has drastically increased. And with that, the mortality rate of indulging in it has increased greatly as well. And there are five kind of primary contributing factors to to this, to the drastic expanse of the enticements to sexual morality. One is immorality's accessibility. It has never been more accessible. It is one click away. You don't even have to go looking for it anymore. It will find you. And another contributing factor is immorality's anonymity. There's never been a time where you can be fooled into thinking that you can sin in secret than in our own day. And then there's immorality's affordability. It has never been easier to be fooled into thinking that you can sin without incurring costs or consequences in this area. And then a huge one in our day, is immorality's acceptability. 
the world has been running a very powerful and convincing perversion propaganda campaign. And what I mean by that is convincing many people that evil, the evil of immorality is actually good and the good of sexual morality is actually evil. It has left many people morally confused. How can this or that be so wrong when it feels so right and it seems so normal? And then, I think most relevant for us today, is the slowness and silence on addressing immorality. We have all these contributing factors for its spread, and then we add to it the churches and our own silence on it or slowness to address it. When I was entangled in this trap, sexual sin as a teenager, I kept silent about it for too long and I was far too slow in seeking repentance and accountability. My prayer was similar to St. Augustine's prayer. Lord, give me chastity, but not just yet. That was his prayer. And as a parent and pastor, being transparent, I have tiptoed around this topic because it's embarrassing. It makes me laugh and giggle sometimes. It makes me feel a bit ashamed and uncomfortable in addressing it. And yet herein lies the major issue with that problem. Well, the church and parents and individuals are slow and silent in addressing it. The world is anything but slow and silent in addressing these matters. The world is not embarrassed, not ashamed to shout and promote its sexual perversions. This is why the Father addresses it. This is why God has inspired his word and included this material in it. And notice how the Father describes the speech of the seductive woman. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. And if you jump over to chapter 6, verse 24, it says the same thing. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress a strange, seductive woman. And then jump over to verse five of chapter seven. He said, I'm saying this to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. The father's saying, there is a voice that is loud and speaking constantly and is very convincing. So son, I have to address you on this topic and you need to listen to me. The, the father is speaking loud so he can drown out the noise of the world. He's operating under the wisdom that I must speak clearly and regularly to the matters of sexual purity to drown out the noise and nonsense and propaganda of the world. Forewarned is forearmed. Ignorance is not bliss. We need biblical information on these topics. Someone is going to teach us on these topics. Someone is going to teach our children on these topics. Someone is going to answer our questions or others' questions. The question is, who is that someone going to be? My initial education on these matters, even I grew up in the church, Grew up in a Christian home. You want to know who taught me about this? It was my neighbor down the street. It was my sports teammates in the locker room. And it was Google who taught me about these. And guess what all those educators had in common? They did not come from a biblical worldview. They did not give me any biblical wisdom at all. And if the truth will set you free, then the opposite is also true. Lies will enslave you. And I was enslaved by many lies. The world is not ashamed to speak about these matters. And more importantly, the Bible is not either. The Bible addresses them. Therefore, we cannot be slow and silent on speaking to issues of sexual desire and sexual purity. The battle is raging, so we need the armor of biblical truth on this topic. It must be addressed. Well, in the second place, to pursue and protect our purity, we need to be equipped with discernment. We need to be equipped with the biblical lenses of discernment. So look at chapter 5, verse 2, and verse 3, and notice a logical connection between why the Father's speaking and the, the underlying motivation. 
So verse two, he says, here's why I'm speaking to you, son, that you may get discretion, that you may get discernment and your lips may guard knowledge for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. She's saying, son, I want you to have discretion and discernment because the lips of lady lust, seductive woman, they drip very convincing, very enticing honey. In other words, the power of seduction, the pull of the temptation of immorality is what it is because it tells very clever, very convincing lies. And we often buy them and believe them. So we need discernment. Discernment is the, the, the art and skill of seeing through something and understanding what it really is at its core. It's the ability to see through outward appearances, to siphon through misinformation, and to get to the truth of the matter. And scripture gives us lenses that help us see through all the lies of this seductive world. We're, we're gonna have a lens when we look at issues like this. And either the world is going to form those lenses and give us our prescription, or the scriptures and our parents and our fellow Christians are gonna give us the lenses to help us see those matters. So we need the discernment of the scripture because lady lust is very deceptive. What at first appears to be honey in verse three, look at that, is what upon closer examination in verse four? It is bitter wormwood. Her lips are really a two-edged sword that kills in the end. So what are some of the lies of Lady Lust that we need to be discerning about? I want to give three of them. Lie number one goes something like this. This isn't immorality. This isn't wrong. This is real love. This is real joy. This is real pleasure. Not like that outdated, deluded, bland version of morality that God is trying to sell you. This is real freedom. Her lips drip honey because everything she says is made to look sweet and sound good and seem right. Jump to Proverbs chapter 7, verse 16 to 18. Notice how the forbidden woman tries to entice this ignorant young man. It says, verse 16, chapter 7, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. She takes a word that God alone defines and redefines it. This, this is real love. How could it be? It, it smells good. It looks good. It feels good. It must be love. In the first temptation and every temptation since, Satan's essential strategy is to convince us that God is not really good and the only reason he says no to this or that is because he does not want you to be really happy. He does not want you to experience real freedom and real joy and real pleasure. If you want that real freedom and real happiness, what you must do is you must break free of his boundaries and break free of his authority. It's the only way. That's what happened in the 60s and the 70s with the sexual revolution. It was saying, this is outdated, this is outmoded. We need real freedom and real joy. But behind all of Satan's bait is always a hook. And every promise of freedom is enslavement in disguise. Look at Proverbs 5:22. Jump back there. The father lets his son know there is a hook behind that bait. And this is what it leads to. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. What looks like freedom always leads to heartache and slavery. Every prohibition that God gives us is not because he's a cosmic killjoy. There is no happier, blessed being in the universe than the God of all creation. He's a huge fan of pleasure. He created it. It's his, it's his thing. 
Satan can only corrupt pleasure. God creates pleasure. Where do you think your taste buds and pleasure receptors came from? They came from God. Every prohibition is for our protection so that we would enjoy pleasure in the right way, in the right context. That's lie number one. Lie number two goes something like this. There's no harm in this. This is a risk-free opportunity. All gain, no loss. The bulk of what the father tells his son is aimed at countering this lie in detail. Immorality is the greatest fraud scheme of all time. Many people have made huge contributions into immorality's investment scheme, and they have not received back one penny. Proverbs 5, 5 to 6 is the father's way of telling his son that the wages of sin is always death. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Then in Proverbs 5, 7 to 14, the father details the temporal cost of sexual morality. And I'm not going to read it there, but you can look at it. And he says, using various pictures and metaphors, that there is a physical, financial, relational, emotional, and social cost to breaking free of God's boundaries. But even more significantly, the father tells his son that there is an eternal cost. When you play with fire, you will get burned. And if you keep playing with fire, it will burn you forever. Proverbs 7, 21 to 23. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Where? All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Then Proverbs 7, 27. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Why does the father address this with such intensity and earnestness? It is a life and death matter. Temporally and eternally, either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, if we think the father is taking this a bit too seriously, Jesus, when speaking about lust in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, he turns the intensity and seriousness of the conversation up even further. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus ratchets up the intensity even further. He's saying unchecked, unrestrained, unrepentant indulgence of our sexual desires is not the road to freedom as the world would have us believe. It is the road to hell. And it is a serious cost. Immorality is always very costly and it is never worth the price. Lie number three goes something like this. No one will know. Your secret is safe. What happens here stays here. Look at Proverbs 7, verse 18 to 21. Look at, listen to the smooth speech, the convincing lies of the seductive woman. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Essentially what she's saying and what the father is describing in the ancient context is someone who's saying, this is risk-free. We're never going to get caught. No one will know. Anonymity and secrecy is a very convincing mirage that fails to take into account one undeniable, unavoidable reality. Flip back to chapter 5, verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. In believing the lie of anonymity, we first have to become practical heretics. And what I mean by that is, 
to believe the lie of anonymity, we have to deny God his eternal, essential characteristics of omniscience and omnipresence. We have to become practical heretics. And yet in denying God these attributes, the only person we're fooling is ourselves. Even when no one else knows, he knows. And even when no one else knows, your conscience knows that he knows. And he's given it to us so that we might know that he always knows. The truth of the matter is that what we cover, God will uncover, either now or later. Either now in his mercy, like he did with King David, calling him to repentance and restoring him, or later in his judgment when all secrets are laid bare and there is no time for repentance. By naming and identifying these lies, we are equipped with discernment to see through the deception and understand the destruction that sexual morality brings. Well, now in our third point, we move from the negative counsel to the positive counsel. To pursue and protect our purity, we must honor the giver's design for his gift. We must enjoy the gift the way he designed it. Look at Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. Before I got married, my life verse was 1 Corinthians 7. If a man burns with passion, he should get married. That was my life verse. I thought, I burn with passion. I'm going to get married. This is a verse for me. In fact, that's how I proposed to my wife. I said, my name's Andrew. I burn with passion. Would you like to get married? (laughs) And then, I'm sorry. And then after I got married, Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. That's my life verse. Now, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, parents, if you're nervous, I'm I'm not going to go into detail on this verse, okay? But it is there in the scriptures for us. Because the the father is saying to his son, The best defense is a good offense, right? He switched from saying in verse eight, keep away, don't go near the seductive woman and all her cheap counterfeit pleasures. And now he's thinking ahead to a time when likely his son is married, vows have been made, promises of lifelong faithfulness have been exchanged and the counsel is overwhelmingly positive. Drink, rejoice, be intoxicated with real love as God designed it and as God defined it in the boundaries he has set for it. He says, drink, rejoice, and be intoxicated when the fire is in the fireplace. When God's design and boundaries for his gifts are ignored, it always leads to devastation and destruction. But when we honor God, when we submit to his design for his gifts, the joy and refreshment and delight is incomparably better than all the world's cheap knockoffs. It is good. The reason God so adamantly warns against drinking the world's seductive sewage water of immorality is not because he's against thirst. It's because he's all about fresh water. He wants us to drink fresh water. He is jealous for us to experience the joy of drinking fresh purified water in the boundaries of marriage. And it's important that we do offense and not just defense on this matter. Because if all, think about this, if all we ever say about sex is that it's dangerous It's destructive and it can give you diseases, so you should save it for your spouse when you're married. You can see how that's a bit of mixed messaging, right? It will leave people very confused. And that's the only education I got about it from a Christian perspective. It's dangerous, it's destructive, and it can lead to all sorts of problems, so save it for your wife. And I thought, that's kind of weird. 
That's not how scripture speaks about it. That's not how scripture speaks about physical intimacy. Instead, the Bible says that physical intimacy, it is so relationally intimate. It is so emotionally powerful. It is so intoxicatingly delightful that you must enjoy this gift only with the person to whom you have said, forsaking all others, I give myself fully to you. For richer or for poor, for better or for worse, until death do us part. Until you have made those promises, until you've set up those boundaries for the fire through the vows and covenant promises that God calls us to, then and only then is it the safe place to light a fire. And as the great theologian Van Morrison said, come on, baby, light my fire, right? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Jim Morrison, one of the guys, you know. I get my theologians mixed up, okay. God warns against the forest fires that sexual morality inevitably starts because he is jealous that people enjoy the blessing of a fire inside the boundaries of a covenant marriage where promises have been made and vows have been performed. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, including the gift of physical intimacy. And this gift, because it is so good and so powerful, has come with clear instructions and clear boundaries. And we must never let our appetite ignore the warnings. We must never let our hunger deny the boundaries that God has set. It will only lead to destruction. We must honor the giver by enjoying his gift according to his design, and it will be for our good. Well, finally, to protect and pursue purity in a world burning with immorality, we need the cleansing, purifying power of the gospel. We need the cleansing, purifying power of the gospel. I left out one of the lies of the seductive woman. It is probably her most deceptive, most enslaving lie that she tells. And the lie goes something like this. The damage you've caused, that your practice of immorality, it's irreversible. Your sexual sin is unforgivable. Your past is inescapable. And your enslavement to your lust is unbreakable. So give up hope and just keep giving in. That lie has enslaved and shackled so many people and kept them down a path of destruction. And the problem with that lie is it makes too much of the power of sin and too little of the power of the gospel, of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If ever there was a city in the ancient world whose immorality was comparable to our own, it was the city of Corinth, where Paul went and did gospel ministry for a very long time. And even in that place, with all of its breaking free and liberating from the boundaries of traditional morality and all of the destruction it caused, even in that place, Paul saw the cleansing, purifying power of the gospel. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. He says, do you not know, Corinthians, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The gospel declares the good news through the glory of past tense verbs. If you want to know the goodness of the gospel, you have to know the tenses of your verbs. So kids, pay attention in grammar school. The grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ is powerful enough to use past tense verb when it comes to our sin. It is powerful enough to remake our identity and rewrite our story. The gospel comes to us, and when we, by faith, receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, 
we have a new story and a new identity. You were defined by your rebellion against God in areas of immorality, but now you are defined by your righteousness in Christ and your relationship to him. You were unclean, but now by the blood of Christ, you are washed. You were impure, but now you have been made holy. You were condemned, but now you have been justified. How can the gospel do that with sin that is so powerful, so potent, and for many people so prevalent in their past? Because Christ, the heavenly husband, comes as it were to his bride, the church, the believer, in their state, not of being clean, but of being filthy and faithless and impure. And he says, let me take that from you. Give me your impurity. Give me your faithlessness. Give me your filthiness. And I will take it and own it and pay for it as if it were my very own. But he doesn't stop there. He takes his righteousness, his faithfulness, his purity, and he clothes his bride in it, covering her shame, covering her guilt, covering her past, covering any scarlet letter that she may think is on her. And then she stands there dressed in her beauty, and he says, this is yours. They will forever cover your shame. They will forever display the fact that I am yours and you are mine, and that in the eyes of me and my Father, you are washed, you are cleansed, you are pure. This is the motivation for sexual purity. You have been bought with a price, washed in his grace. Therefore, should we not flee from it and glorify God with our bodies and the desires he has given us? That's how the gospel applies. Let's pray.